Pride membership class. I've mentioned a couple times that uh, the idea for this, that we're going to be offering this to some different prospective church members, people that are interested in joining our church and kind of inform them a little bit about our thoughts about what church is biblically, but also something specific to our church body. And uh, in speaking with a number of people, they mentioned we should do that for everyone. It's been a while, probably so a good refresher for everyone. So we're going to do that all together, and eventually this will be something we offer throughout the year for prospective members, but that's on Sunday evening. So whether or not you've been a member here for a long time or you're interested in becoming a member, if you would, be a part of that tonight, 5 o'clock, and we have a couple more weeks after. And then this Thursday, we have our day of prayer, a prayer vigil um, that we're having from 7 in the morning to 7 in the evening. Each hour on the hour, we start a time of prayer in here. Now, if you don't get here right on the hour, that's fine. Come in whenever you arrive. That'd be just fine. Uh, but we've been collecting prayer requests. You see there on the back of your bulletin, there's a small little uh, tear-off or cut-off sheet. And you can write a prayer request on there if you'd like and leave it in the offering box at the back in the foyer behind the Welcome Center. Or there's little prayer request cards that are there at the Welcome Center. You can fill out as many as you'd like. And those requests, it can be something like we would put on our prayer request sheet or um, our, what we, our list that we have each week, or it may just be something that uh, you're facing or that's coming up in the coming year, uh, maybe a family member or friends that you'd like to pray for for their salvation or for God working in their heart and life. It could be any number of things, as simple or as broad as you would like, and you can put your name on it. You don't have to. It could be anonymous as well. And then Thursday, we'll have those cards spread throughout the auditorium. And when you come in, you'll be able to take those and pray through each of them and trusting the Lord and asking God uh, to work on behalf of uh, our own church family. And so if you would uh, plan to be a part of that, you come in and uh, pray for an hour or however long you'd like with friends, family, uh, or as a couple or as an individual. And uh, there'll be somebody that opens each hour in prayer, but then the rest of the hour is just given to that. If you can't be here, we ask, we're asking each member to commit an hour of prayer that day specifically to our church ministry and uh, what the Lord would have us to do here. And you see some events coming up <clears throat> at the end of the month. We have a uh, missionary couple with us next week. We're excited about having uh, them with us as well. And then next Sunday evening, we'll be voting on them as well as a couple other um, missionaries that we have. And so we'll be presenting uh, them uh, for support. Then a ladies' fellowship, the seniors' conference there at the edge. There's some sign-up sheets at the back for both of those, and then a men's breakfast coming up in February. And so I hope that you'll be a part of each of those in the coming weeks. Look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 13 this morning. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and welcome to use that. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have a number of guests and visitors. If some reason you don't have a Bible of your own or that you can call your own, then that's our gift to you today. We hope that you'll take it with you as well. Any guest, there is a, uh, a welcome bag at the back at the foyer on your way out, just a way to say thank you for being with us today, a small gift from us to you. <clears throat> if you would, look at Matthew chapter 13. We've been studying the book of Matthew for a number of months now, and uh, we have kind of hit a pivot point in the book, really the hinge point, I guess you would say, of the whole book of Matthew. We've been there for the last few weeks, and now it's going to move really into quick action, that change and transformation in the book in the next coming verses. So let's begin there in Matthew chapter 13, verse number 53. It says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence, or he left Capernaum, the city that he was in, which had sort of been his he had moved there sort of as his hometown, his base of ministry. So where did he go? Verse 54. And when he was come into his own country, he, thought them in, <clears throat> he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary? His brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters... Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. If you would, turn to the book of Mark as well. 
as we studied through Matthew, we, we have just kind of taken it in the context of the book of Matthew as he has given it to us. But I think it'd be helpful this morning to read two other portions of scripture that give us the same account or similar account. So we're going to read those and then we'll pray and have one final song this morning. Mark chapter number six and look at verse number one. Mark 6 and verse number 1. It says, And he went out from thence and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are not not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. One final passage, if you would, look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we will discuss this in just a moment, but just as we start and as an introduction, Matthew 13 and Mark chapter number 6 are fairly evident that they are the same event. They are the same interaction of Jesus with his hometown. They're placed kind of in the same timeline that Jesus had done the same works. Now, Mark does not include all of Jesus' parables that he has just taught, but it's in the same timeline, kind of in the same vein, and it's about a year or so into Jesus' ministry. Luke gives us an event that is very similar, and there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not this is the same event. You will notice in a different way, Luke places this interaction right at the beginning of his gospel. Jesus has just faced the temptation with Satan and the beginning of chapter number 4, and then immediately this is what is discussed. Now, it really doesn't do us a lot of good to decide if Luke chapter 4 is the exact same incident or if it is simply a similar incident about a year before Matthew 13. But either way, we're going to see some similarities and we're going to see Jesus' heart toward the issue, whether it's the exact same event or if Jesus, like many teachers, had to go back and repeat himself to those that were in his hometown. Look at Luke chapter 4, look at verse number 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it to the minister, the rabbi that was there, or the scribe. It says, And he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. He's kind of staring in amazement, unsure of what's happening. So he's read this passage, which is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. He sits down and what does he say? Verse 21. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. So very similar to what he said in the other chapters, but now he elaborates. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah or Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But Unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisus, the prophet, and none of them, or Elisha, none of 
them was cleansed, saving, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, led him into the brow of a hill whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Let's ask the Lord to help us with this passage in Matthew 13 and these accounts of the rejection, the unbelief that even Jesus' hometown friends and family had toward him. Lord, we ask you this morning that you'd teach our hearts from your word. It is the most important thing that we will do today is to read your word, the word that you have given to us, the word that you have shared with us. We know nothing of you specifically. We know nothing of God apart from what you have chosen to reveal to us. And so may we with reverence and honor and seriousness hold up your word in our eyes and then in our minds and hearts. May you move and work in us and teach us what it is that you're trying to reveal about yourself and about humanity and about our own hearts. And then may we respond to that. Uh, May you move by your spirit, make it evident in our hearts and lives. And we will thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Truth and song this morning. That knowing Jesus, nothing compares to it. As you read just a moment ago, as we read together in Matthew 13 and Mark 6 and Luke 4, Jesus returns to his hometown, and it just makes me almost think in some ways of the message of that song. He returns to people that very much knew him, but never were able to actually know him. They knew of him, they grew up with him, they watched him, they had part in raising and rearing him with Mary and her family, and they experienced and watched his life, and then they saw him go away, (coughs) but they never knew him. They were never able to know him in the way that he desired to be known. They never knew him as the Savior. They never knew him as Emmanuel, God with us. They had God himself living with them for probably about 25 years or so of Jesus' time, by the time he was born and went down to Egypt and came back and moved to Nazareth, and then by the time he kind of went away and began his ministry, he lived there probably about 25 years. And they didn't know him. They didn't get to experience him. They didn't know that he was God himself living among them. And then you think of the disciples and the apostles and those that he had called to himself, this ragtag kind of group as we had pictured it, and they did get to experience and know him. And there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and stuff about God and actually knowing Him. And there's something that hinders and keeps that relationship from becoming real in the lives. There are some people, and especially in today, now I know that in America in the last, oh, probably half century, maybe a little bit longer, that Bible literacy has kind of gone down, what people know in general about the Bible, about Jesus. And and we know that to be true. But as much as anywhere in the world, and really as much as any place or any generation or any time period in history, we have the ability to know things about the Bible, know things about God, even know things about Jesus in a way that many others have never been able to experience. We have more opportunity than maybe any place or any time period in the history of mankind. And yet there's such a disconnect. There are people that know about Jesus, but really do not know Jesus. Because there's a difference between the two. And it comes down to some of what we're going to read today, what we're going to study. You have Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's been teaching, and to sort of set the scene, Jesus has been teaching and preaching for some time now. As we've walked through the book of Matthew, a lot of Matthew is Jesus teaching. It's his words that were recorded, 5 through 7, chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus really very directly teaching about the kingdom of heaven, telling about what God is like and what his interaction is supposed to be and what God actually desires and wants from mankind and what that kingdom really looks like. He's very direct about it. 
And then after he finishes that, he begins to heal and work miracles in chapters 8 and 9 and confirm, I have the authority not just to say what the kingdom of God is, but I can display it to you. Then he calls some people to himself and sends them out and the apostles. They receive and obey, but yet there are multitudes of people that also reject. And he rebukes the religious leaders and the rulers that would know all about the law and know about God, but would not accept and believe him and not follow and submit to him. And he rebukes them and says, you haven't repented, so there is no relationship. And yet he also talks to the people in Capernaum, the, the area of Galilee that we just read about a moment ago where Jesus ministered and works great miracles and teaches and gives all the parables. And he also responds to them and says, you haven't repented either. You enjoy the big feasts and you enjoy the miracles and you enjoy the celebrations that we have together when people are restored, but you won't repent and you won't follow. So there's no relationship. Then Jesus in chapter 13, and we've been studying it uh, probably the last four or five sermons that we have been in uh, the book of Matthew have been from Matthew 13, these parables. And Jesus talks about a sower going into a field and putting down seed. And yet there are different responses to that seed. The soil reacts in different ways because of its nature. And the same is sort of true in our own lives, isn't it? And in around the world that there are different responses to the gospel. Then he teaches about the wheat and the tares and that God's kingdom dwells also with the kingdoms of the world and that sometimes it's difficult to differentiate and it's going to be that way all the way until the end of time. And then Jesus says, but still my kingdom may seem small. He says like a mustard seed, but it grows into a tree that gives shelter. He says it's like yeast put into a huge pile of dough and bread and yet it kind of infiltrates and takes over it all. He says my kingdom is the same way. Yet he also continues to teach us that some are going to reject. Some are going to respond in a negative way to his kingdom. And we see that illustrated in these last verses of Matthew 13. And the point of those parables and that there's different responses to God's kingdom and that is not very clearly revealed to all people, that not everyone sees it or believes it. But we have no control over the human heart. And Jesus is going to, or Matthew is going to give it to us in Jesus' life to illustrate. We have no control personally as human beings over how people will respond to the gospel. People don't reject the gospel because we are flawed. And I say we meaning Christians who should be witnessing and sharing God's word, displaying God's kingdom, telling people what God is like. People do not solely reject because we are flawed. Now, we can do some silly things to contribute to people's rejection of Jesus, but ultimately, in the heart of people, we can live the best life. We can have the smartest mind. We can have the most knowledge of Scripture, but it doesn't move people's hearts. Only God can do that. Many people today spend a lot of time and energy trying to come up with tricks or gimmicks or tactics to change people's heart. But the truth is, to change hard-hearted people, the gospel, God's spirit, we think, well, maybe if I'm more intellectual or more relevant or smarter or more emotional or more fun, and certainly we know that there was no better evangelist than Jesus, no better preacher than Jesus, no one understood the gospel better than Jesus, no one preached with more conviction, no one displayed more compassion no one was more relevant. No one taught in the way that Jesus did. And yet, despite the life and ability of Jesus, the Savior of the world, still people responded to his gospel with rejection. Even his own hometown. And, and it's not to say that only his hometown rejected. He's been rejected quite often already in the book of Matthew. So like you can kind of imagine that Matthew devotes this next section of his gospel, and you have some of it there mentioned in your notes if you want to follow along, that the upcoming two chapters give us all these interactions with Jesus, his interaction with his hometown, what Herod does when he hears about Jesus, the 5,000 that were fed, the disciples in a more intimate setting, the Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees when he goes finally to Jerusalem, the Canaanite woman, the 4,000 that are then fed, the sort of a second uh, display of his power in the same way, the Pharisees and Sadducees, 
But out of all those opportunities where people are presented truth by Jesus, out of those eight opportunities in the next two chapters, only two of them result in any sort of belief, or if you would call it success, of someone following and trusting in Jesus as the Savior. And so you have Jesus, you see there, number one, Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth in verse 53 and verse 54. Not much is said about it. In fact, there's not a lot that is said about Jesus' life in Nazareth other than that he was from there. We have a very little detail in that when Jesus kind of comes of age, he becomes a man in their ancient Jewish culture. He's about 12 years old and he goes to Jerusalem with his parents and as he goes there, he is lost from them. Well, they lose him more likely, I guess you would say. And he goes in and he's teaching, he's talking with the scribes and Pharisees and here is this boy by physical stature, but man by how they're viewing it in their culture and society, but also fully God, fully man. He's teaching and says they were awed. How is this possible? Not just because of his age, but because of the type of family he's in. He grew up a, a carpenter's son who would have gone and been a tradesman, an apprentice with his father, not going to Jewish school or not going to boys' school. So how could this uneducated young man know and display this type of wisdom? That's really the only thing we have of Jesus being in, growing up in Nazareth, and he wasn't even in Nazareth when that happened. In fact, there are some, extra, I call them extra-biblical sources. I won't even call them extra. They're, not, they're just outside of biblical sources from around that time, some from some early writers around the time of the early church and some that wrote down really about three or 400 years after uh, the Gospels were written, and they kind of wrote in accounts of Jesus when he grew up. And uh, they're full of fancy and whim, and, and to be honest, I don't think that there's much truth to them at all. In fact, there's one that talks about how Jesus, when he was a boy working with his dad, that he would carve little birds, and that as he would carve the birds and he would finish, he would throw them into the air, and they would turn into real birds, and they would fly away. And it says in that account or in that reading, it says that men bowed down from Nazareth, bowed down before him and worshipped him in response. I, I would say I don't think that's true based on what we just read in Matthew 13. Because if you saw a young boy carve a bird and throw it into the air and it turned into a real bird and flew away, you probably wouldn't respond the way that they do in Matthew 13. The truth is Jesus lived his life in relative obscurity growing up. Now, he did not fake sin. His sinlessness would have been hard to miss or hard to ignore. But he did not display his outward ability, his power, and his divinity to them throughout his years. It kind of remained hidden until it was time to display that to bring men to himself as the Savior of the world. And so you can imagine that after he starts to do this, he comes back to Nazareth, which is at that time, a town of about four to 800 people. It's not like people didn't know each other and they knew everything about each other and everybody knew everybody's business. And so he returns and we see that he goes back and interestingly enough, on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue and he teaches them. A synagogue is a place of gathering for Jewish people to hear God's word and they worship together. And so he goes in the synagogue and he begins to speak to people and he teaches them and they were astonished. The Bible says that they were stunned. Remember, it says that they were stunned at the graciousness, Luke says, with which his words were displayed. They were amazed at his teaching, and there was no doubt that Jesus Christ as a teacher was a good teacher. They were amazed at it. And you would imagine that their response to his teaching would be positive. Here's this hometown young man who's grown up here. He's gone off now. He's already worked miracles. And Nazareth is not far from Capernaum. And the fact is probably the case that a lot of the people from Nazareth have been in the multitudes that followed Jesus around during that time period. It would have been all in that same region. So not only have they heard of the miracles, they have most likely seen the miracles that Jesus has worked. They have heard him teaching sermons like the Sermon on the Mount and the parables that he's been teaching. Word gets back, and now he goes and he sits in their presence. And you think, this is amazing. Look at what this... What has happened? The very Savior of the world, the Messiah, or even if they didn't sense that yet, this great teacher and this worker of miracles. But how did they respond? It says that they were offended at him, verse 57. The word literally means to stumble over. The Bible tells us that he couldn't do 
or he wouldn't do and couldn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He had been doing some things similar all throughout the region, and yet his own hometown responded, and we're going to focus on this word this morning. They responded with unbelief. And this is not the most popular, fun sermon topic, you know, to come in. You want to come in this morning and speak about joy and love and hope, and all of those things are found in the gospel, and yet God chooses in his word to give us this little snippet, this reaction of his very people, some of them his kinsmen, his family, and others that he had grown up around and been a part of, and yet they responded with unbelief. Why would God give us this in his word? Why would we focus on this? In fact, if you were trying to spread the good news of Jesus and display him as being great, in fact, this is not the type of media that you would want getting out. This is not the type of news that you would want everyone to know, that even his hometown rejects and turns away. And yet God chooses to allow us to know this portion of the history, this moment in his life, and he gives it to us for a reason. We're going to see that as we walk through. And I think that God is speaking to hints of sometimes unbelief in our own hearts, that if it is possible for the very people that watched Jesus for decades, more than anyone else that Jesus interacted with in his life, if they could respond in unbelief, then surely I could too whether that is in a form of salvation or if it's even as a Christian, as this church-going Christian, that sometimes my heart is prone to unbelief and disbelief and apathy and coldness toward Christ, no matter how familiar I am with Him from His Word and from the teaching and from church and everything that goes with it. He hints to that, but He also hints to if Jesus would go back and speak to his own people, and they would respond with rejection and unbelief, then we cannot be depressed or discouraged when we go to the world with the message of the gospel and they respond in the same way. If Jesus would go to his own people, this small group, four to 800 people that knew him his whole life, and he preaches to them the same way he's preached to everyone else, they've seen the miracles. It's not that he hid things from them. They know about his miracles. And notice their response in verse number 54. He comes to his own country. He taught them in their synagogue. They were astonished. Their question was not, is he telling the truth? Their question is not, can he teach or is he a good preacher? Their question is even not, can these miracles be real? They see the miracles and they hear the teaching and they don't reject that he's doing those things. They reject who he is and where he's getting the power to do those things. Their question is not, can this be real? They've seen it. They've heard it with their ears, seen it with their eyes. Their question is, where did this come from? He grew up around us. And they ultimately refuse in their unbelief to follow Christ. So let's note a couple things about that. Their response of these Nazarenes toward the Savior, ultimately their response is unbelief. And you'd think that if God stepped into history in the form of a person, a young man who spent his life in this community, you would think that this would be the people that would believe ultimately. Number one, you'll see this refusal, or you see in this that their unbelief was rooted in their own personal refusal. It does not say that they could not believe. It does not say that they were unable to believe. It never says that they can't believe. It says that they will not believe. It says that they wouldn't believe. It says they chose to respond in this way to the gospel. Unbelief is not that you can't believe. It is that you will not believe, that you won't believe. And there's a big difference. Sometimes some of us today or some of the ones that we know that are seeking to come to the gospel or seeking truth, they'll say, I need more information. I need to understand. I need to see more. Tell me more so that I can believe. But there's a difference between that mentality and there's a difference between that thought and what you see in the people of Nazareth. It is not that they were saying, show us more and give us more so that we can believe. They said, show us more because we don't believe. They were choosing not to believe in what God had set before their very eyes. The evidence was clear. They were even astonished. And yet, 
the, the choice, the personal choice to reject Jesus, to plainly reject and turn away from him. They had seen his impeccable life growing up, though he was not overtly public in his displays of miracles. The sinlessness couldn't have been disguised and uh, evidently in their own minds. He was not what they were looking for in a Messiah. Everyone else pales in comparison to the man Jesus Christ, the God-man. Of all the people in the world, the people of Nazareth had the least excuse to not believe in him. And yet, they would not believe. And there's people today who would say the same thing. They'd say, oh, pastor or whoever, you know, we need more miracles. We need to experience something deeper. We need something better. I need to be connected in a better way before I will give myself to Jesus. I need to understand more. But the people of Nazareth had heard, and it's clear that Jesus is a great miracle worker, and yet they didn't reject him. John chapter 12, verse 37, talks about it even more specifically. It said, in fact, that he had done many, many miracles in front of them, and yet they still did not believe. You see, unbelief is a persistent refusal. There's a difference. Someone who has not heard the gospel or does not understand or they have just been introduced, and some of you are walking through that sometime, some right now with friends and family, and some of you shared that with me, that you're starting to share with them the gospel. There's a difference between an initial introduction to the gospel and an initial introduction to God and trying to wrap your head around and figure things out. But there comes a point in which the Holy Spirit calls on a soul and a spirit to believe in which the responsibility is then laid on man's soul and heart. Will you believe? And there is this reaction sometimes that, that people have, and I, I've been guilty of it at points in my life before as a Christian and even as a Christian, that there's sometimes I want God to work in a certain way and do a certain thing, or I want to have faith to serve God in a better way. I want to have faith to show my, display my faith in a better way and work and serve and do great things for God and love Him and give myself to Him. But it's like I want Him to prove Himself to me more so that I will do those things. But God is God. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He's not the one that needs to explain himself to us. He's not the one that needs to display himself to us. He has already done that. And sometimes what I think is putting out my fleece, as we would say back in the story of Gideon. You know, sometimes we look at Gideon's request and we say, well, Gideon was so such a man of faith. He laid out a sheep's wool and said, if this gets wet or it's soaked, then I will go and obey God. I'll take it as a sign from God. And then he did the reverse and he did it again. The problem with that was he was asking God to give him a sign for what God had already promised. God had already said, I'm going to do this. And then Gideon said, well, if you're going to do this, and then he said, then you please do this other thing. Gideon's issue was not his great faith. It was actually unbelief. And he desired that God would show him more, not so that he would believe, but because he was stuck in his unbelief. And the same is true for these people in Nazareth. It expresses itself. Their unbelief is this stubborn refusal. Now, again, we mentioned that Matthew 13 and Mark 6 are almost certainly the exact same event and account. Luke 4, you could argue one way or another whether Luke is setting that event just sort of as he tells the story of Jesus. Look, think about how it starts even at his hometown. I, I tend to think that there may have been a gap, about a year gap, and that it's actually a separate event, and that Jesus is actually having to go back and do this again, which in essence speaks to the heart and nature of God that he works persistently against their unbelief, that in mercy and grace he continually brings this to them. The Bible says in, in Luke chapter 6 that he knew their hearts. That's why he responds that way. He says, now I know your hearts. You're about to ask me to even heal myself and do a great miracle here like I did in Capernaum. You're asking for a sign. He knew their hearts. He knew they were rejecting, and yet he continually gave opportunity. Even so much that he came back about a year later, if that's the case, and I think that it is, he comes back a year later and does the exact same thing. Aren't you glad, if you're a Christian here, how many of you would say it took a little while for the gospel to find root in your heart? In that you heard the gospel multiple times before you came in repentance and faith to believe. And you'd be willing to say that. Anybody? Yeah. 
most of us. <laughs> Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't take one shot and then walk away? But rather over and over, persistently, he speaks to the persistence of our unbelief. The persistence of our refusal. And we can fall on our knees before God. And we know that Nazareth rejected him to the place where eventually some of them were lost completely. We know that some of them eventually turned to believe. His own family members being an example. And yet you hear over and over, you can hear the gospel but simply refuse to believe. I want to ask you this morning, before we move on, is that you? Have you heard the gospel over and over and over in your life. And it kind of makes sense. But it's also kind of odd and weird. Because you don't know. You, you can't know. You can't like watch it on TV and, and see it happen. And when you're saved, it's not like your hands change form. And your body, your hair changes colors. And everything is restored. And there's no more sickness. You don't sense it in a physical way. And so you're stuck with this, I think, I think I could believe, but I'm not sure I need more. Stop telling yourself that. We've all been there. Most of us as Christians in the room have been there where we think, I need more before I can follow Christ. Nazareth needed more too, but they never did. And it is not that we need more so that we will believe. It's that we need more because we won't believe. And so the Lord is calling this morning in your own heart and life to follow Him and lay it down and follow. You know, Jesus knew better. He knew that they wouldn't follow. Matthew chapter 12, we won't go back there, but it says that evil, Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. They wanted Him to work miracle after miracle after miracle, kind of chains of miracles. And it really, it gave them an excuse not to believe. Again, it wasn't, I need more so that I will believe. Give us more so that we'll have more time to not believe. Like they're just buying time in this process. And look how they rationalized it as we get ready to kind of finish out. Notice, they have this refusal in their unbelief, but it didn't just stop there. They had to rationalize it. And isn't that the case for most of us when we have something that we've decided or uh, we've made a decision, we like to have a reason for it. We like to be able to explain it. It doesn't do a lot of good to say, this is what I've decided, and this is what I'm firm, and this is what I believe. I have no idea why that's the case. Most of us won't do that. Most of us have to have a reason. And the people in Nazareth were no different. They rationalize it to themselves why they can't believe. Notice in verse number 55, is not this the carpenter's son? And many people feel that this means that Joseph has probably already passed on, that, that he's probably already dead. They don't even use his name here. And so they're not as much talking about who Jesus was the son of in the carpenter, but this is his trade too. Is not this the carpenter? Trades sort of passed from down the family line. Isn't this the guy that just works with wood? Like he builds ox plows and he, he puts together uh, yokes to, to plow the fields and he works on chairs and tables and things, and yet now he's saying he can save the world? They rationalized in their mind why they could not believe, why they thought they couldn't believe. He said, we can come up with our own excuses in life sometimes, that we're too busy, we don't know enough, we can't figure it out, that things seem unrealistic, or that uh, we're still questioning one thing or another. We have all kinds of questions and excuses. And so let's get this straight. There's nothing wrong with questions, nothing wrong at all. It's not the questions that are the problems of our life or those that we are witnessing to. It's why we ask the questions that are the problem. These people are not asking questions. Is this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Is, it, it, don't we know his brothers? Are, and he lists out four of his brothers. And Don't we know his sisters? Don't they live with us? Where did all this come from? They're not asking questions to try to figure it out and believe. They're asking questions trying to negate any form of belief in their heart. They're choosing not to believe. And so they deflect away and they turn away from their responsibility to believe and they think that they've excused it and they've rationalized it. Notice we put a few things there at the bottom. They looked at Jesus. They looked at his upbringing, his education. It's not, not all these are listed here, but in those sense, where did he get this knowledge? Where does he have this power? We know he grew up around Nazareth. Nazareth with 400 people. There are not a lot of good schools in Nazareth. 
there's not a lot of places that he could get education. His family is common, even amongst Nazareth, the poor. He's a carpenter's son. His family, even themselves as their hometown, how, they're kind of insulting themselves. How could the Savior of the world possibly come from our town? How could this possibly be? And they try to dumb it down and simplify it and say this just cannot be rationalized. But our inability to rationalize something does not make truth untrue. And it won't change. And the truth is what they're toying with here is not a decision of rejecting a person or their buddy that they grew up with or the guy that they played games with or the, peop- the, the family or the one that they traveled with to Jerusalem for the great feast and to make sacrifices. It's not that they're rejecting a relationship with a person. They have eternal implications in their unbelief. And when people don't believe the gospel, if you're in here this morning, you don't believe the gospel, or even in our own hearts, it is that we are telling the God of the universe that what he has told us is untrue because we can't explain it, because we can't define it, because we can't come up with some system in our mind to justify it and make it make sense. But that is not a command of the gospel. The command of the gospel is not to understand and figure out, but it is to follow and believe. And yet it is God that does this work in us. As we finish up, I want you to think about this. Jesus is not handled passively or neutrally. It's just not the case. And it's going to be the case when you preach a sermon, when you teach a lesson, when you walk through a devotion, when you tell someone and teach someone about the Bible. It was John Wesley, I believe, that when he trained preachers, he would send out pastors and preachers, and when they would come back, he would ask them two questions. Were people converted? They would answer one way or the other. And he said, and if not, were people offended? One or the other. Because Jesus is not handled passively. You can't just deal with it. It's not like an item at the store that you decide today whether you need it or not. It is eternity at stake. And so as Jesus finalizes his time here in Nazareth and they're offended at him, he says a prophet is not without honor save in his own country. And he displays that, that their unbelief is expected even by him, even though he's given them the opportunity. And their response, he quotes this about the prophets. But then notice verse 58. He would do no great works or miracles among them because of their unbelief. He would not. Here, verse 58 in Matthew 13, it says he would not do it. He did not do it. Mark chapter 6 says he could not do it. Those are not contradictory statements but rather they're saying the same thing in different ways. Jesus would not because of their unbelief, and because of their unbelief, he could not do anything else there. Not because he wasn't powerful, not because he's not sovereign, not because he, but because the responsibility of their heart to follow turned to rejection. Let's finish with the last there, things that we can learn from this interaction, and, and we'll be brief with our application because it's fairly simple. Yeah, there, Larry. People do not simply reject the gospel because we are flawed. Unbelief is rooted in a sinful heart. Let's remind ourselves that if we present the gospel, I don't even like that word, if we give the gospel, share it, tell of God, and people don't respond, it is not our fault that they respond that way. And let me say this carefully in this way. Now, we can do a bad job of it, We can do a lazy job of it, or we can choose not to do it. Those are our issues or our problems. But when we give the gospel, it is not that we have to be ultra-eloquent, ultra-intelligent, and answer every question that someone could have in life. And if we don't, then their soul is on us. And that's hard for us to comprehend. And sometimes we feel this guilt and shame that I give the gospel and people don't follow. They don't believe. So something's wrong with me. No, Something's wrong with all of us. It's sin in our human nature. And there's this refusal to believe and say, oh, how do we learn that lesson from this? Because Jesus Christ, sinless, perfect Savior of the world, lives among people for 25 years, gives them the same gospel that you and I have received, and they reject it even from his lips and life. And so we don't respond to the rejection of the gospel with quitting. Jesus did not quit. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, well, if my own 400 people won't believe it, 
then surely nobody else in this world is going to believe it. I'm going home. But he doesn't. In fact, Luke gives us that little, or Mark gives us that little kind of jab insertion. He says he couldn't do any mighty works there except on the way out he healed a few sick people. Like he just randomly changed people's life as he was walking away from it. They're going to reject me and I'm going to go somewhere. And he says, what does it say? He went to the next villages and preached there. Our response must be the same. Someone doesn't believe. It doesn't mean we give up and walk away from them. I want you to notice and remember, Jesus goes back and does the exact same thing, most likely, one year later. He returns to them, but he does not give up because of their response. And you may have a son, a daughter, a, a husband, a wife, a parent, a, a cousin, an uncle, an aunt that refuses to believe. Don't give you may have a student, you may have a coworker, you may have a friend, you may have a neighbor that for years you have labored. Don't give up. I want you to notice, look if you would, look at the list. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son, is not his mother called Mary and his brethren? Notice the list. The Bible tells us in other places that even his own family didn't believe in him at the start. But notice the list, James Yes, same, same half-brother, same James that wrote the book of James that ultimately comes to believe. Judas, most likely, that is not Judas Iscariot. Most likely that is the one to whom the, the book of Jude is attributed. So obviously, eventually they believe. What can we learn from this? Don't give up. Think about the hard cases that Jesus inserted himself into Nicodemus, ruler of the synagogue ruler, Pharisee, there's no way he's going to believe. How, do I, how am I going to be born again? You, or how am I going to be saved? You must be born again. And Jesus gives him one of the most baffling explanations of the gospel. Yet who is there bearing the body of Jesus at, at, and then awaiting in that resurrection? Nicodemus, who believes. Zacchaeus and Matthew, who served the Roman Empire, who have been rejected by the Jewish people, who have turned aside from their Jewish faith, surely they won't believe, but they do, and they follow. The woman at the well, all these different people, some believe, so don't give up. And then the last two, that God, because God has a desire to see any and all saved. You see the, the desire of Jesus here. He knew their hearts, yet gave them the gospel. He knew they would reject, yet he desired that they be saved. And as hard as that is for us to understand, well, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew they would reject, yet he still gave them the gospel, knowing that some would believe. He desires, that is his desire. And then notice the final thing, the remedy for unbelief is the work of God alone. Only God could work in someone's heart that persistent rejection only melts away when the Spirit of God works. I think of people all throughout Scripture. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes it's direct, like Nebuchadnezzar, a, a man with great power, and, but also great rejection of this God, and yet God inserts himself, turns him into a, a beast, loses his mind for seven years, and when his thoughts finally come to him, his thought and perception of God was completely different. Sometimes God inserts himself into a life in that way. Other times, it's like the light bulb turns on. Let me tell you, that's not someone just figuring it out. It's the Holy Spirit mercifully, gracefully working and warming the heart and an affections of a deep, lost, dark, depraved sinner. And more than anything else, as we close this morning, think about your own life. If he could warm your heart and change you and make you turn your eyes toward him, if he could bring this about in your life and give you the opportunity and responsibility and ability to believe in him for the gospel, he could do it in anyone else. So we don't give up. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And we do not seek to be discouraged from the fact that you saved the world, gave the gospel, and people rejected. We could look at this and be discouraged, but we ask that we would not. We ask that we would find encouragement in that some will believe, 
We ask that we find encouragement that your desire is to save. And we ask to be encouraged in the fact that your grace is far stronger than our sin. And we ask that you point our lives and hearts to you. And teach us. Help us to be bold in our giving of the gospel. Help us to be wise in our words. Prudent in our lifestyle. That we could share your word and your nature with others. Lord, we pray for those that might be here this morning that are haven't experienced this, that haven't believed, that are lost, that are, as we may say, unsaved, without salvation. Work in them in a way that no person can. No message, words, sermon, song. Only you. May we set aside our questions and our rationalization follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you would this morning. The message is clear and, and maybe you have heard the gospel like these over and over and over and over again and yet you've just rejected. You've chosen not to believe. For whatever the reason is, it doesn't matter. God's call to you is still the same. To follow, repent and by faith find salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So this morning if that's you You can come to this altar at any time during an invitation. Somebody will meet you here and take you aside and share the gospel. This is eternity. It's not, it's not, not making a decision at Walmart. Do I need this or not? It's eternal life and death. If you're a Christian this morning, you're witnessing to someone or you're trying to live a certain life by faith and try to rationalize things, or you've had your own doubts about your own salvation, about your own Christian life about God's love towards you, whatever it may be. May we set aside our unbelief and just choose to follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Let's sing together, if you would, as we close.